I shared with you last week about the summer of 1985 in my life and how I had walked away from the Lord and it showed itself, me being away from the Lord, it showed itself in a number of ways and here's one of the ways that it showed itself. It was in my attitude with my father as I worked with him. He owned a construction company. He built churches and houses, a school, barns, all over New York State. And I worked for him in the summer of 1985. It's early summer. It's, it's early June. And it was a Monday morning. And again, I kind of told you this last week, I was far from the Lord. I'd been drinking all weekend. I did not even want to be at work. But it's Monday morning. It's about five minutes after eight. I will remember this probably for the rest of my life while I have memory. And my dad said, Tim, I want you to take the forms away above that door where you poured the concrete in Friday, the Friday before. I took the forms away, and in plain sight, and this would remain visible, this was a commercial doorway of a church, in plain sight were holes and pockets where I did not tamp the concrete down all the way. Very shoddy work. And my father angrily handed me a ball-peen hammer and a chisel. He said, you chisel all of that out of there, and you're going to re-pour it today. Now it's about five minutes after eight. It's a Monday morning. That morning, ten minutes after eight, I became the first and only person to ever quit on my father's construction company. And I left that site. It began an 18-mile walk home. And for two weeks, my father would not talk to me. And I was okay with that. Because my heart was full of arrogance and stubbornness. Well, we're going to read about a man named Jonah who was the prophet. And he's about to walk out on God. He's about to quit on God. And we've got a lot to learn from him because we might just find ourselves, if you haven't already, to hand in, about to hand in your resignation letter to the Lord. But importantly, this book called Jonah, it's really not about the prophet. It's not really about Nineveh, to whom he was sent to go and speak the gospel. It's centered on God. In fact, God is mentioned 38 times in the book of Jonah. And though God's sovereign power, now you got to hear this. this. This really sets the stage for the theme. Even though you see God's sovereign power on display all through the book. Now look, he sends a wind. He calms the seas. He orders a, a big fish to Jonah. He orders the fish to throw him up. He creates a vine. Then he destroys the vine. All of these amazing displays of God's power and right to rule over all of creation. And the book's not about his sovereignty. Not about that at all. In fact, what it's about is more warm, more beautiful than God's sovereignty. It's about God's relentless grace. And if you recall from last week, the very first verse actually begins in the original Hebrew with the word and. 
that's a conjunction, indicates that there is a story that's already in motion when the book of Jonah opens. And that story, now listen to this, that story is God's rescue mission. It's his plan to, listen to this, save sinners and restore creation. He's had a redemption mission. Don't you remember in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That ransom word was the price that you had to pay in order to buy a slave out of slavery or a captured war soldier out of the bonds of the enemy. And Jesus said, I came to pay the ransom price. You see, this is a redemption mission. He's redeeming us out of the penalty and the grip of sin. It's the rescue plan. And we're going to see the assignment that God gives to Jonah as well as Jonah's response. So let's just get right into it. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 2. And let's look at the assignment first. And while we're doing that, I want to encourage you. You've got to have the discipline to put yourself into the sandals of Jonah. So listen to the word of God come to him in verse 2. As if it's coming to you. Arise. God said, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now let's stop there for a second. In that little phrase I just read, there's two commands. And they're both in verb form. You know what a verb is, it's an action word. And it seems like such a tiny point to make, yet for most of us, I think probably for all of us, it's the first point where we fail in our service of God. We have a little saying in the Ackley family. My kids know it. My son finishes it before I even can. He rolls his eyes at it. They're not really fond of the saying, but we've drummed it into them through constant repetition. Here it is. Parents, I would encourage you to incorporate this into how you speak to your children. Delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. If we ask you to do something, children, this is how we instruct them, then to sit there and ponder it is disobedience. What we want and what pleases us is your response. <coughs> Not yet. All right. <coughs> We're all going to be doing this throughout the night. This is not an advertisement for crystal water. When God gives an assignment to one of us children, he likes it no more than we do when we disobey and we delay. And what delights God is an obedient heart that says like Isaiah, here I am, send me. Now if you've got the NIV version, I want you to look at that for a second. doesn't have the word arise they omit it yet it is the way that Jonah's assignment began so does it indicate now think about it God says arise does that mean Jonah's in bed is he having a dream from God or is he in a trance well this word occurs 600 times in the Bible arise and 90% of the time it means to get out of bed it means to get off the floor it means to stand from a seated position. 
It's how it was used when Jesus said to that little girl, little girl, I say to you, arise, when she had died and she was lying prone in bed, and he tells her to rise, he brings her back to life, and he brings her out of that bed. But it's also used metaphorically, and this is the way it's used in Jonah 1 verse 2. And it's used like this when God tells Joshua, who followed Moses, to arise and take the people of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. You see, the people of Israel had camped. They had settled down. They had stopped marching. They stopped moving. So when God wanted Israel to break camp, when he wanted them to get moving, he would command Moses to rise and go. <coughs> I think I'm going to be doing this the whole time. This is going to be a fun sermon. He told Gideon, who was stuck in hiding, to arise and go. You know why I think I'm coughing? Are these ceiling fans. So if somebody who knows how to turn them off, the front ones could do it, that would be really helpful. And everybody on Sunday morning is going to be looking up at these ceiling fans, wondering why aren't they going. When Elijah, who was camped by the Kareth Brook for six months, and his water was, was dwindling, do you remember that? The brook, it was dwindling, and there was no more water. Then God's word came to him and said, rise and go. In other words, in all of these occasions that I just explained, you had gone from a settled position to a movement. And this is how the word is using. Jonah had become settled, and God says, I want you to get moving, arise and go. Now listen, all of us, all of us, tend to trend to dormancy. Now take stock of your life for a second and see if this is not true. All of us tend to want to be comfortable. We want to settle. We don't really like those interruptions in life. And we get mired into the affairs of this world. We get stuck in life. We all skew toward this predictable, comfortable life. And we don't really like these interruptions, but yet God constantly interrupts us. So how easily we can find ourselves, just like Jonah, where we can get year after year asleep on mission. Now, I'm going to ask you to interact with this for a second. Now, you brace your soul, like the psalmist says, and speak to your soul for a moment. Are you currently on mission? Engaged in God's rescue plan. Now, the way that you answer that is this. You have a job that God gave you. You have a home that God has given to you. You have, a, you have acquaintances or a social circle that God has given to you. And in every one of those job, home, social circles, he's given them to you for the express purpose of saying this is your mission field. So are you on mission really means are you actively seeing, God, you gave me this job for a reason, not to make, ultimately, not to make a salary to pay for my needs. That's part of it. That's not ultimately it. It's to actually bring your rescue plan to people. It's actually to live as a witness, to live in a way that draws people to my life and beyond my life to my God. So if you're on mission, you will live consciously in a way that says, I want to get people's eyes off of me and onto God. I don't want glory. I'm not hungering for self-promotion. I want God-promotion. 
It's a radically different way to live called humility. There's a reason that the word go follows arise. Now listen, God's saying, Jonah, arise, you're dormant, you've settled, you got to get up, and you got to get moving. You know that word go occurs 49 times in the book of Acts alone? Probably should memorize this. A going church is a growing church. A going church is a growing church. We are to be going all the time. This is our great commission. By the way, it's our only commission. It's how we work with Christ on mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's what it means to get on mission. Are you living in a way where you're making disciples who know how to make disciples? Now, let me just ask you some questions. And by the way, if you were the one preaching, I'd have to hear these questions too, and I ought to be hearing these questions. When's the last time you shared about your hope in Jesus Christ to somebody that does not know him? Not hinted at it, not invited them to church. That's all good. Don't rely on bringing them to church. We had somebody that brought somebody to church last week that I've known for a few years. I'm pretty sure he's not a believer. He left and says, that's not my cup of tea. Listen, don't rely on the church experience to do your work. Your work is to make disciples. When's the last time you shared with somebody that's not a believer all about the gospel? Well, that's how you know if you're on mission. When's the last time you sat down with a Christian who is perhaps not as far along as you spiritually, and you explain to them the word of God. You begin to invest in them, helping them spiritually grow, or you sat under somebody else doing that very same thing for you. That's how you get on mission. This is how you evaluate, am I on mission or am I settled into dormancy? And if you're the latter, God's going to be speaking to you saying, arise and go. So let's evaluate ourselves if you got your bulletin you'll see these in there and i'm going to give you some questions to ask to really take stock and you have to do this honestly because you're the only one seeing it so you might as well be brutally honest with yourself and i want you to to look through these and if, if it's a yes then put a five if it's an absolutely no put a one and if it's anywhere in between which is where we usually try to self-evaluate right we don't want to say five that's arrogant we don't want to say one that's painful Try to be honest. Do I plead for the salvation and the restoration of the spiritually lost people in my life? The way that Abraham did when he heard that God was going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he pled with him over and over. Do you prayerfully plead with God over the lost people in your life? Now, if you do that regularly and if you do that passionately, you should answer a five. If you've not done that for months, you're trending down to the one. You're dormant. You're settled. You've got to arise and go. Do I begin each day by reminding myself that in everything I do this day, there's nothing greater than to serve God's purposes? You start your day with that mindset. If you don't, you're going to trend to dormancy. Do I regularly review my day before I go to bed and evaluate how well I serve God? The problem is, for a lot of us, we don't ever do this. We don't ever take those few minutes to go back over our day and let the Spirit of God encourage us where we did well and convict us where we didn't. 
Do I leave the worship services of my church excited to serve God in my life? Do you leave here knowing that as you walk out of this church, you're walking onto your mission field? And are you excited? You can't wait to go to work. You can't wait, perhaps, to go to your family where there's unbelievers. You can't wait to contact your neighbors and get together. You can't wait to get back in that dorm room or your school, um, maybe your, your teens or your band. You want to make your mission field preeminent in your life. Now, if you don't think that way, then you're back to one. If you think that way all the time, you're up at a five. Now, here's where it gets really, really sobering. You ready? Does the way I manage my calendar reflect a yielded servant of God? It really would not be difficult for you to say, Tim, I want to sit down, and would you be okay if you and I walked through your calendar? I want to see how yielded you are to God's mission plan. It wouldn't be hard for you to see that. Even more sobering would be if you actually asked me, can I see the way that you spend your money? Because the way we manage our money reflects how much of a priority God's mission really is. Now, how are you doing with those six questions? The way that you want to respond to them you could, I, I suppose, you could be getting a little annoyed at me because I'm, I'm being kind of intrusive. I get that. I get annoyed at preachers all the time. Usually it's because they're putting their finger, finger on something I don't like. But maybe I would offer this. Maybe if you're doing well, then give all the glory to God because it's by His grace. Amen? If you're not doing very well, can I encourage you? Before you leave this sanctuary you find somebody to confess that to you walk out this door here comes the crows jesus says and they will pick that little bit of sobering conviction right out of your mind and you'll get back in your busy life and forget all about what the spirit of god was telling you be brave enough find somebody before you leave and say you know what pastor tim gave those six questions here's where i know i'm not doing very well and I need help. I need you to pray. Jonah was told to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. You know how far Nineveh was away from Jerusalem, or the area, where, rather, where Jonah was? He was in the northern kingdom of Israel. 550 miles. You go straight up into the east, you're going to get to Nineveh. It's in uh, modern-day Iraq, Mosul. And it would soon become, it wasn't yet, it would soon become the capital city of Assyria. It is the biggest and largest city on the planet at that time, historians say. It's an ancient city. You know when it started? This is amazing. Go all the way back to Genesis 10. You get to the wicked son of Noah, Ham. Ham has a son. His name is Nimrod. Nimrod built Nineveh. It was wicked from inception. It was massive. Not only was it the largest city on the planet, it took three days to walk across it. Back in ancient days, that's huge. A hundred foot high walls. So wide that you could ride three chariots with their horses side by side right around the walls. 
and it was a populated city. It had 600,000 to a million people in the city, but it was a wicked city. And I want to read to you what Nahum, a minor prophet, he prophesied against Nineveh. And I want you to read how he describes it. He says, woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. Now you can read the rest of that. Nineveh was a city full of injustice, murderous, godless, bloody people. And Jonah, verse 2, was to go and look what he says, look what God told them, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now listen, I want you to hear this. This is probably one of the two most important things I'm going to tell you. A message of condemnation is not a graceless message. I know, we all want to say how much God loves us. We want to focus on his kindness to us, his mercy for us. We don't really like to be the ones that have to tell them about God's wrath. That God hates sin because he's holy. We like the good messages. But a, a message of condemnation is not a graceless message. God wrote the sermon for Jonah. He wrote his sermon. I, it would be so awesome if I could just come before you and say, hey, listen, by the way, friends, here's exactly what God told me to tell you. It doesn't work quite like that. You've got to take everything I'm telling you and you've got to bring it back to the word of God like the Bereans and Acts to make sure I'm right. But Jonah, he just preached what God told them. God told them the sermon. Here's the sermon. Go cry out, call out against it. Call out against Nineveh. Short and not maybe so sweet. It's a message of warning. Now you got to hear this. It's a message of warning intending to move them to repent and be rescued. Now you're going to see why this makes sense in about 30 seconds. After I tell you this, God's not obligated to warn them. He does it because he's gracious, he's merciful and loving. By the way, now here's what I wanted to tell you. Don't good parents give their children a warning before they discipline? You might not have had parents that did that. You might have had a father who, as soon as he, you did something wrong, he flew right into discipline. Listen, it is gracious parenting to warn your children before you have to discipline them. This is what God is doing. And John the Baptist, by the way, he did a very similar thing. He wrote, he, he preached, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that, there, that therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. What, you know what he's doing, John the Baptist? He's giving the imagery, watch this, that God has taken out his axe of judgment. And here's what you do when you go to cut a tree down with an axe. If you don't do this, this is how you get hurt. You get your feet set, and you put the axe against the base of the tree and measure your swing. And this is what God's doing through John the Baptist. By the way, this is what God's doing through Jonah. He is giving a warning of grace, and he says, call out against it. It means to warn the city as a whole that God, the ruler of all, including Assyria, was not for them. He's against them. Now, if somebody told you, Christian, that God has become against you, you would probably be quite frightened. You should be. 
although he cannot be if you're a Christian, there is no longer any condemnation. Who can be against you if Christ is for you, if God is for you? But if God were against somebody, then that means that God is about to unleash himself on them. Why? Because look what it says in the text. Their evil has come up before me. Now here's what could be going through your mind, maybe. You might be thinking God's at his desk, dressed in his business suit. And here comes an angel to plop down a report on Nineveh. And it's not a good report. Their evil has come up against me. That's not what's happening. That's not what that phrase means. God is very aware. He doesn't need an angel to report. What it means is this. Haven't you heard the phrase, it stinks to high heaven? Haven't you heard that saying? Well, that's what this means. You know what? They believe that that originated from Shakespeare and his Hamlet story when Hamlet's uncle said, oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. That's where they think it originated. I'm telling you, it originated a lot lot, uh, farther back than Shakespeare. It originated with God. This is what it means. Nineveh's evil was a stench so bad that it had risen to his nostrils the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah's has. And what a parallel for us today. Now, you're going to be either really in tune to what I'm saying, or you may tend to water this one down. But here's what I'm going to tell you. What a parallel to America. Are we really that much different than Nineveh? As great as the U.S. is, when Nineveh was a great city, would any of us really deny how far from God America has gone? Well, I would suggest that we really aren't that far off from Nineveh, Nineveh, making the question important, are we far off from what Jonah's about to do? Are you and I much different than Jonah? Well, what is Jonah going to do? Let's look at his response. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. You know, I love the book of Jonah. I think it's one of the best written stories in all of the Bible. You know why? Because it's factual, yet written with narrative flow. If you've read Jonah, don't you feel the storm-tossed seas? Don't you feel the terror of the sailors, the dramatic demise when Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the ocean, the petulance of his self-pity? You feel all of that. That's the flow, that's the power of the book of Jonah. But God, right in the midst of it, says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. This is the beauty of the book of Jonah. God says, Arise, go, cry out, call out against them, for their evil has arisen to me. And the flow is the word, but Jonah arose. He arose, but he arose to flee. Why? Was it because he was afraid of preaching God's wrath to the brutal, wicked, bloody Assyrians? Is that why he refused the assignment of God? I mean, come on, I'm telling you as someone who preaches, it's not always easy for a prophet or for a pastor to preach what they know is going to upset people. It's not that easy. If you're a people pleaser, you're doomed. But even if you're not, it's not that easy. You want to know why it's not that easy? Well, you can see it in Jeremiah the prophet. God had to tell Jeremiah, 
But you dress yourself for work. His work was prophecy. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them. Do not be afraid of them, lest I dismay you before them. God was saying, Jeremiah, he wouldn't be saying this if Jeremiah wasn't afraid. Jeremiah had to preach a message of condemnation to his own people, and God said, stop being afraid of them and preach what I tell you to preach, or you're going to be afraid of me. The truth is, friends, there is no indication anywhere in the book of Jonah that he was struggling with fear. None. In fact, he himself gives the reason why he flees to Tarshish. Flip over to chapter 4. We're going to get to it in a little while. But look at verse 2. Here's why he fled to Tarshish. He writes, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, God, that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew God's heart. He knew that God would forgive them. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to be forgiven. He wanted them to be destroyed. Now, how's that for a prophet of God? See, his heart looked very different than God's. And he flees to Tarshish. He is intent, look what it says in chapter 1, verse 2. He's intent on getting away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? I mean, did Jonah really buy pagan theology? You know what pagan theology believed, right? It believed that their, your God, your little G God, only had power in its territory. And if you get out of its territory, then you're now under the power of a different god. That's why they had pantheons, many gods and goddesses. So is this Jonah? He thinks he could just get out of the territory of Yahweh, Israel, and once he's out, he's clean, he's solid, he's free. Look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 1. He's telling the sailors that his God made the sea and the dry land. He knows he can't get away from God. He owns it all. He must have known David's psalm, Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? That's verse 7. He had to have known verse 9 where he said that God is even at the uttermost parts of the seas. He can't get away from God. You can't flee the presence of God. Now listen, I'm going to teach you a Latin phrase. We're all going to say it. Coram Deo. Let's all say it. Coram Deo. Deo is God in Latin. Coram is before Meaning that all of us at all times, now think if this is not frightening, all of us at all times are constantly before the face of God. He is always seeing us. There's never a moment where you can get one over on God. There's never a moment where he didn't quite hear that innermost thought of jealousy and anger and rage. Or that doubt there was never a moment where the lights were out and God's vision could not penetrate the darkness. He sees everything. You're always before the face of God, as am I. Jonah tries to flee the presence of God. What does that mean? 
Well, look what verse 3 literally says. I'm going to read it to you literally. It's a little different than your English. Jonah rose up to flee from being before the Lord. Now, you ready? If you were alive back then, here's what have immediately come to your mind. It would have been a picture of a servant standing against a wall, his eyes attentive to his master, waiting for the slightest signal to jump into action. This is a servant phrase from before the Lord. See, Jonah wasn't trying to escape the presence of God. Listen, he's trying to escape the position of being God's servant. In other words, he submits his resignation letter and quits. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. God, I don't want to go to Assyria. I don't want to go to the Ninevites because if I go and I preach this sermon that you gave me to preach, they're going to repent and you're going to forgive them. And I don't want them forgiven. They're the enemies of Israel. I'm not going. Here's my resignation letter. I quit. And he goes as far away from Nineveh as he knows geographically exists. Harshish. But he doesn't really understand what the Apostle Paul is going to say. Now watch, let this ring in your ears, friends. If you ever want to quit on God, here's what Paul says. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You cannot drop them. You cannot hand them back to God. He will not change his mind. Once he gives you a calling, once he gives you the gifts for the calling, he never takes them back. The calling goes on throughout the rest of your life. But Jonah... Look what it says, verse 2. He went down to Joppa. That's the nearest seaport on the Mediterranean to him. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Three times Tarshish is repeated. And make, listen, when the Bible does that, it's trying to communicate. It's making it crystal clear. There's no way Jonah's going to Nineveh. He is dead set on fleeing. He forfeits the favor of God and God's protection. So watch this. Instead of, instead of God's rule over his life, immediately he begins to go down, down, down. Three times, actually, in these next several verses. He's going to do it his way, not God's way. Look what it says. He paid the fare and went down into it. A fare to Tarshish, by the way, was substantial. Tells you really where, how comfortable Jonah was materially in life. And he's heading to Tarshish. It means to smelt. It was a Phoenician mining town, they believe, all the way over on, this, on the coast of Spain. 1 Kings 10, you know what, listen to this. 1 Kings 10 says, or it indicates, that a voyage to Tarshish from Israel and back took three years. That's how far it was. It's the furthest place that Jonah knows to go. It's completely east, while, or west rather, while Nineveh is east. It's in opposite directions. When we quit and hand in our resignation letter to God, you will begin to pay your own fare. In other words, you will begin to live by your own flesh. And your flesh, that spiritual nature 
that opposes God, that's what our flesh is, that part that makes us yearn after sin, that part that gives in so easily to temptation, that flesh will lead you downward in life until you spin out of joy and into depression and despair. That's the only direction the flesh will take you. So what did Jonah do wrong? Let's look at his mistakes as we bring this to an end. I'm going to give you three mistakes that Jonah made, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In every one of these mistakes, would you put yourself up against them? I have to do that for me too. And see how well you're doing. First of all, Jonah was not a man of prayer. He was not a man of prayer. It seems Jonah's a lot like us. We all of a sudden turn to God when our life comes crashing down upon us, right? When, you, when a crisis comes, all of a sudden we launch into prayer. We get back to church. But when life is going well, we settle into dormancy. Many of us, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Many of us tend to call out to the Lord, pray out of our distress when we get really hard times. <coughs> A person who doesn't sit often before God in prayer is one who's going to be listening to his own counsel. A person who does not sit often in prayer will be a person who will listen and believe his own counsel. And I don't know about you, in fact, I actually do, but I know about me, and the counsel that I give myself always seems like good counsel. I always feel correct. And how many times have I understood and discovered I really wasn't giving myself good counsel? But when I'm in communion with God, my perspective, my counsel shifts. It gets corrected and sometimes even discarded totally because often they were wrong. This is the power of prayer. Listen, the power of prayer, friends, when you sit long in the intimate presence of God and you speak to him and you listen to him speak to you, the power of prayer is to bring a shift in the way you think and, the, and what you desire, so that it may be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will becomes your will because your will shifts. But when you don't pray like Jonah, only when times get severely difficult, when you don't pray, you exist in your own counsel. And your own counsel is coming from your flesh, and your flesh wants to pay its own fare, and it will take you down as you live in your own efforts. God's call to Jonah, his assignment produced a crisis in Jonah, but he does not move to God in prayer. He doesn't present his complaint before God like Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 12. He doesn't spread out before the Lord the letter that King Hezekiah did from the king of Assyria when they were sitting outside the gates to conquer them. He doesn't spread it out before the Lord like Hezekiah did. See, prayerlessness takes us to Tarshish. It urges us to rely on our fair-paying flesh, and it will quickly drive you into misery downward. 
Friends, if God has given you an assignment, which he has, called the Great Commission, to get on board his mission, and you're finding it hard to accept it in your life and in where he has you in life, then listen, your first step is to go to God in prayer. Sit long before him. And if Jonah had done this, then he would have received power from God to have victory over his own heart. But there's two more mistakes that Jonah made. The second one is this. Jonah was not a man in the midst of godly company. He receives this assignment from God and he does not pray, nor does he go to a godly friend for counsel. There's not anywhere, listen, listen to this, there's not anywhere in the whole entire book of Jonah that gave evidence that he had a friend or a counselor or a confidant. He's utterly alone. Yeah, he talks in chapter 2 to some pagan sailors, but that's it. He's a solitary figure, chapter 1 actually. He's the prophet, right? He is the prophet of the day. He's famous, and he apparently discovered what a lot of people do. It's pretty lonely at the top. But that loneliness is one of our own making, for it is not the way that we live on mission. Where is Jonah when the storm hits on the Mediterranean Sea? Look in chapter 1. He's asleep down in the very center of the boat, again, all alone. Solomon got the danger of this. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Jonah fell and there was no one to lift him up. So let me ask you, and you should be asking me this too. If you want to, you should, you can. Are you living life with godly company? Do you have godly friends to turn to when your faith is failing? And do you know what is really amazing? Listen, I'm going to give you now a perspective from the lead pastor of your church. It is frequent. It's not infrequent. It is frequent that people in our church come to me and they ask me to pray for them that God will give them a good friend. That happens more often than you think. They want a friend. How can they be in a church of 550 people and not have a friend who's godly to turn to when their faith fails? You know, some of my best friends, my closest friends in life, listen, I'm going to tell you how I got them. You ready? They came into my life through being in a life group with them and learning to live life together. Some of my closest friends in life are ones that I met and got to know and started walking in life with in my life group. So get in a life group. Learn to live life together. And you're going to be able to navigate together through the highs of life as well as the lows. Jonah had no one. And when he fell, there was no one to pick him up. Is that you? You will not be able to make it in this Christian life alone. It's not going to happen. Nobody's been able to do it. 
Thirdly and finally, though, Jonah was not a man driven to worship. He wasn't a man of prayer. He wasn't a man of godly friendships. And he was not a man of worship. How do I know that? Don't go there now, but I would invite you to some point. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph writes, as for Israel, God is good, but as for meat, as for me, my feet nearly slipped. In other words, he's saying, God, you're really good to everybody else, but not me, and I'm about to fall. And then he goes on in bitterness and lamenting, and he begins to talk about these godly, godless people who are profit, prospering in life. They're getting all these things. They're, they're successful in life. They're, they're able to overcome the good and the righteous. And my feet are slipping because, God, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not just, and I don't get it. And if it ended there, it's going to end like Jonah does in chapter 4, dismal and full of despair. But it doesn't end there. It goes all the way to the end where all of a sudden, watch this, you ready? Asaph takes himself to the Lord's sanctuary. That means he went to the temple to worship. And when he got to the temple, all of a sudden he saw the might, the glory, the grace, the goodness, the beauty, the power of God. And all of a sudden a shift occurred in his heart that sent him out of the temple a whole lot different than he came in. That's the power of worship. God's relentless grace should be on full display in worship. When you leave church, you ought to be leaving differently than you arrived. You ought to be leaving with more power, with more encouragement, with more conviction, with more excitement to get back on mission. Because you've seen God and you've felt his presence again. See, it was public worship that shored up Asaph's mind to be able to see the realities of heaven and hell and the justice of God's plan and the generous grace of God for sinners like all of us that occurred in worship. Jonah was not a worshiper. It's really not that difficult to see that a prayerless, friendless, worshipless life has no power to live on mission. Yet God is about to pursue this westward heading rebel called Jonah. And listen, you better hear this because it's true for you as well as it is for me. God always catches his prey. Always. And his relentless grace is going to pour out on Jonah, but his life is going to get worse before it gets better. But he will get Jonah back on mission because nearly a million people need to be rescued. Maybe God is pursuing you. And maybe you want to tell yourself he is going to catch you. Because he's got a job that he has chosen you to do, Christian brother and sister. So what ought we to do? Arise, go, and do. Amen?